I'll say, bless the Lord, if you'll say, oh, my soul, bless the Lord. Bless his holy name. Thanks, Jandy. Hey, look, if there's any uh, charismatic brothers or sisters in the room, feel free to take off in a dead sprint around this room when they start singing, I ran out of that grave, okay? <laughs> Just figure out where you're going and where you're landing so we don't end up a YouTube video, but I, I can't think of a more appropriate expression of worship and celebrating the glory and goodness of the gospel than that. Um, guess what? I used to have a motorcycle. Um, just need you to know that I used to be cool. Um, as a matter of fact, I've had several motorcycles. Thank you. Um, and uh, I'll show you a picture of my favorite one. Um, this is the, the last one that I had. Uh, that's three of my favorite things on planet Earth, my wife, the bulldog, and the motorcycle. Well, the only one left is my wife, which out of the three, I'll take her. That was a Russian motorcycle with a sidecar. It was unique. It was distinct. It was all the things that I secretly wanted to be. Um, and I loved it. But this was my first bike. I dropped 500 bucks on that Kawasaki. Um, and I did dumb things. I, I made poor financial decisions for our family early on. I justified it with, it's going to be great gas mileage. Right, Matt Morris? Um, and I, I, we probably spent money we didn't have. I believe God's forgiven me. I've forgiven myself. Pray for my wife. She's still in process. But... That was the first bike I bought. Now, at the time, I was like 28 years old. We're living in Alabama. Uh, I'm in seminary. Again, that's what every good seminary student needs is a motorcycle. Um, and in the state of Alabama, no Alabama jokes, please, because they're still near and dear to my heart, but it would actually be appropriate here. I don't know if it's the same for the state of Tennessee, but you can be a licensed motorcycle driver and never have ridden a motorcycle in your life. All you had to do was pass a written test. So I went to the DMV, studied up, passed the test, got the stamp on the back of my license, like class C or whatever, motorcycle license. I've never ridden a motorcycle in my life. I've ridden it in my mind, it sounds really cool, I think I'm gonna look cool, but all right, I'm licensed. I, no one's taught me, no one's told me, I just passed the written test. So I went and found that back before those details aren't necessary. So I found the bike, brought it home. At the time, we were renting a house with a really steep driveway. A friend of mine drops it off on the trailer. It's about 9 o'clock at night, and I can't wait. I'm too excited. I hop on that bike. I try to remember what I studied. I'm like, uh, I think this is the clutch. This is the brake. That's the throttle. There's the gear shifter. Okay, start it up. I'm like, yes, I got it. Pop it into first. And then if you've ever driven a clutch, it's, it's, it's really intimidating because you don't, you don't want to stall out. Even though no one's looking, I still want to look cool to myself. And so I start to let go, and I make the classic mistake of as it starts to catch, I pop the clutch and jam the throttle like this. And I shoot off like a space rocket about 30 miles an hour. Um, are you all messing with me? <laughs> up the driveway and hit the side of the house. Bikes in the dirt, still running, flashlights on there. I'm shaking up a little bit and I realize I have drastically overestimated my ability here. <laughs> what I should have done probably is got someone to teach me or train me or show me or wait till I was in a safe area, but I was just way too excited. The reason I tell you that is I wonder how many of us as children of God we jumped into this thing called faith and Christianity, and God gave us spiritual gifts and authority and power, 
and we were all gung-ho, and we jumped on this thing called the kingdom of God. We gunned it, and somehow we didn't have appropriate respect for the authority that we were carrying or committed to. Many of us could pass a written test, but really haven't had any practical experience and are too embarrassed to ask for help or to ask for a safe and secure location where you can be trained up to actually start implementing the things that you already know. And some of us gunned it straight into the side of a house or an obstacle, and we've walked away and said, I tried that once, and I really just don't know with all the fear that I've experienced from past failures and past woundedness if I want to figure out how to do that again. And so we're wrapping up a series called Fear Not, um, and we've been walking through different fears that keep us from the glory and goodness of God. And after we did the first installment, it was supposed to end last week, but after I did the first uh, series, one of our leaders, Nick, came up to me and says, can't wait for this series. Fear not. Sounds awesome. Are you going to talk about the fear of God? I know I hadn't planned on it, um, but you're right. Wow. Uh, that's, that's difficult, isn't it? Over 200 times, the Bible tells us to fear not, and yet at the same time, it tells us to fear God. How in the world do those two things go hand in hand? So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Psalm 31, verse 19, and we're going to just going to try to teach through this concept as best we can with the Holy Spirit as our guide and the scripture out in front, and we're going to try to see how these two concepts uh, go together. Uh, Psalm 31, verse 19, I'll pray for us as we're turning there. Father, uh, I humbly ask that the fear of God would fall on this congregation. Part of me is scared to ask that. Part of me is fearful if I don't ask for that. So Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Jesus, would you go before us in this text and make a way. And together we say, speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. Psalm uh, 31, verse 19. How great is the goodness you have stored up for those who fear you. You lavish it on those who come to you for protection, blessing them before the watching world. I'll say the word of the Lord if you'll say thanks be to God. The word of the Lord. Does that sound weird to anybody else's ears besides mine? First time I read it. I love it. How great is the goodness you have stored up. Awesome. For those that fear you. What? Why would I fear a God who has greatness and goodness stored up for me? Uh, it seems like polarities or opposites or it just feels like schizophrenic or are we having a hard time translating out of the Hebrew? What's going on here? So here's just short teaching that has been incredibly helpful for me as I've been wrestling through this. Um, in Hebrew, there's a word for goodness and a word for fear, but there's two types of theological implications for those words. So first, the word for goodness, it's tov, it means good, and there's two types of theological goodness found in the Bible about the goodness as it refers to God, general and peculiar. 
general goodness and peculiar goodness. So general goodness is this. Hey, tonight you're going to go home, you go to sleep, you're going to wake up in the morning, you happen to get up early, get ready to do your quiet times, get a cup of coffee, step outside before the blue blazes heat hits. It may be in the mid-70s because the rain has come in and the sun's going to hit your face and you just breathe in and go, thank you, Father, for the sun. God, you're so good. Thanks for airing my lungs and another day to live life and praise you. That's general goodness. Why is that general goodness? Because Friday night, you can go out, blaspheme the Lord, have a night of drunken debauchery, wake up the next morning, and guess what? That sun will still be there. That's the general goodness that God has given to all of humanity. It is temporal, and it is designed so that when we experience God's general goodness, it raises our awareness that there is a creator, and he is to be acknowledged, and he is to be uh, praised. So this is what Matthew 5.45 says. God makes the sun rise on the good and evil alike. Now, while we receive a temporary general goodness, it is designed to bring us to a place of repentance and recognition of God, the Father of Jesus. And if you do not, death and destruction await you. That's what the Bible says. Romans 2.4 says it this way. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. So that's general goodness. Now there's peculiar goodness. Peculiar goodness is God's abundant provision and goodness that he has stored up for the children of God. Alan Ross puts it this way. He's an Old Testament scholar. That kind of goodness, it is the sum of all good things that the Lord has treasured up for the use of and enjoyment of his people. For those of us who are children of God, it's the source and it is the substance of everything good, faithful, enjoyable, truthful, reliable, sustainable. And guess what? When you get to the bottom of that, there's even more. There's free refills. It's not only temporal, it's eternal. We're scratching the surface of it here and now. And what God has stored up us for all eternity, I don't know about you, I don't want to miss out on any of it. That is God's peculiar goodness, because why? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why would he choose us out to lavish all of this on us? I don't know, but I'm saying thanks be to God because he does it. And here's the awesome part about this peculiar goodness. It even applies when you're in the face of pain and evil. Because even this goodness of God can transform our pain into our profit. This is how Romans 5 says it. Not only so, but we glory in our sufferings. Why the tar would we do that? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How great is that? But there's a catch. If you want the general and you want the specific goodness of God, if you want to unlock the door and open up the treasure stored up for you by the creator of this universe, the fear of God is the key. Well, what do we mean by fear of God? Let me pause and say this. I understand that there are some of you in this room who are recovering from post-traumatic stress religious disorder. Some of you grew up in a brand and a denomination like I did where we wielded fear as a manipulative technique, not only to convert people to Christianity, but to keep them in it. 
And we kept people in a constant fear of hell, fire, damnation, and punishment. That is part of the gospel, it is not the full gospel. And so, unfortunately, some of us, even though we've been set free, even though Christ had cried from the cross, it is finished, even though the wrath of God has been satisfied through the sacrifice of Jesus and all of those of us who align ourselves with him can enjoy the freedom and finality of that sacrifice, still so many of us live in constant fear of punishment and disappointment. And that's not what the Son set you free for. There's also some of you in here And I've got a friend like this right now, and I don't know how to appropriately communicate to him. God is not to be trifled with. You worship yourself. You are your own God. And that will lead to death and destruction. Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It means to bow down before a sovereign, holy God and say it all starts with a posture of humility and submission before your greatness. And for those of you who stand up proud face, I pray that you will bow down by the grace of God. And for those of you who are humbled lower than you ever were supposed to be, I pray that you know the God who is the lifter of your face. So, two types of fears. Uh, first of all, it's Yirah in the Hebrew, and fear has two connotations here. It drives us away, and it draws us in. Fear that drives us away and draws us in. In its right context, understood biblically, it drives us away from godless loves and godless living. It drives us away from sin and destruction, death. It just drives us away from selfishness. It just drives us away from living lives that will destroy us and the people that we love because all we can see is ourselves, our needs, and our desires, and we don't get, care who gets hurt in the process. And then there is a fear that draws us in, draws us into hope and healing, salvation and security, his goodness and his glory. And they work in partnership with one another. It's fear that when I get over here and there is temptation and there is sin and there is evil, I have a knee-jerk reaction in my spirit that says, run, flee. And what I do is I run straight into the arms of God. And so my question for you tonight is, when you're afraid, what do you run to? When you're facing some of your biggest fears or most consistent fears, what draws you in? Is it the word of God? Or is it worry? What are the unhealthy attachments you learn to help survive some of the most fearful things that you've experienced, but now you want to retrain your mind and your body and your soul to stop running from God and run to him. And the things that you draw in are love, faith, hope, and mercy. A buddy of mine puts it this way from James. My brothers and sisters, count it all joy when you face trials and temptations of many kinds. What temptation always arises when you go through a trial? In fear, how are you tempted to short-circuit what God is trying to produce in your character? 
The fear of God was designed us to drive us away from godless loves and lives and draw us into the goodness and greatness of the love of the Father. This is why in verse 19, the result of God's goodness that is the result of the fear of the Lord produces taking shelter in the Lord. And this is why in the shelter of the Lord, you can actually read Philippians 2.12 and actually understand it. I can work out my salvation in fear and trembling because the storm is passing me by and I am in the shelter of his wings. Now, here's how I break this down for you. At least this is how it's happened in my life. I would say when it comes to the fear of the Lord, I had a healthy, uh, that's the wrong word, I had an unhealthy or an incomplete understanding of it. Um, What dominated me most during some of my foundational years was FOMO, fear of missing out. Hyperactive, energetic, engaging kid, young adult, late adult, and I just, where the action was, I wanted to be. And if there was pleasure or goodness or fun to be had, I'm in. And here's my confession to you. I did not believe in my heart of hearts that God's goodness was all that great. I thought he was a religious fuddy-duddy who was up in the sky wanting me to have a miserable life and smack me in the face the second I got out of line. That is an incomplete and unhealthy fear and perspective of God. It was about punishment. And so those desires led to sinful activity and running away God and being drawn in by unhealthy attachments. I saw the world offer me a package that said freedom on the front, and I tore into it and bit into it too late only to discover that it was slavery in disguise. But thanks be to God, slowly, ridiculously slowly, and surely, I began to try to trust God. And the place I had to start was in the middle of my pain and my isolation and my depression, all of which were results and consequences of decisions that I freely made. But I began to fear and respect and revere that God has designed us to live a certain way. And when I step out of that and run away from him, there may be short-term pleasure, but there is long-term loneliness and dissatisfaction. I began to move and try to be consistently drawn into him. It's so hard at first. You feel so guilty and so unworthy. You feel like you're bothering him and you feel like you're a waste of space in his kingdom. But if the gospel is true and God's grace manifests through Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit, I wanted to test it. And so now it's unbelievable. I'm finally at a place in my life. It doesn't mean I still don't struggle. It just doesn't mean sometimes it doesn't pull as hard. Because now I've replaced FOMO with FOMOG. I have a fear of missing out on God's goodness. I legitimately, I do not want to miss out on how great the good, he has proved time and time again, he's steadfast and true. That faith in him is the surest way to life and salvation. 
And I don't want to miss one drop of the glory and goodness that God has stored up for me. I'm going to lick the bowl clean of his goodness. And anytime something threatens it or smells like sin or slavery or something I used to step in, I'm running as far and as fast as I can to it. And I'm hiding and letting the Father draw me into his love and whisper and remind me what life living abundantly in the kingdom really looks like. I got so excited, I don't even know what's next. <laughs> You're welcome. Here's my question. In a couple minutes, we'll have 120 seconds, and we'll kind of listen to the Lord and interact with him. And the question I want us to guide that time is, are you willing to trade your fear for fear? Are you willing to trade your fears for fear? What do you mean by that? I mean, are you willing to trade all these inordinate fears for the fear of God? Real quick, I can't, I got, I got to go here because it's, it's just too good, all right? So ancient Jewish wisdom has it that there are three types of fear or levels in the fear of God, okay? I'm going to butcher these Hebrew words, and if anybody else is a Hebrew scholar besides Purdom, just close your ears, okay? So it's Yerah, so... I'm just going to mumble half of it and just act really confident in the midst of it, okay? Any of my Jewish brothers and sisters, I respect your culture. I'm about to butcher it, so I apologize. Yirah hachunesh is we anticipate pain, but we flee it. Yirah hakumut is anxiety over breaking God's laws because we'll be punished. Anybody live in those two type of fears? Then the third highest level, oh, by the way, I also got to do this. I'm sorry, I'm just getting giddy. Anxiety over breaking God's law because he will punish them. This is what 1 John 1, 4, 18 means. Perfect love casts out all fear. I've always said that when people bring up the fear of God. Well, perfect love casts out fear. I don't know what you're talking about, fear, fear, fear. What are you, weirdo? In the context, John actually describes this type of traditional thinking because fear has to do with punishment. And you've been delivered from the punishment because you love Jesus and are living like him. This is anti-gospel for you to live in fear of punishment if you are in Christ Jesus. Satan loves to make you think that the gospel is not true for you even though you've already given your life to it. The third one is Yirat Haomet. It is, that's actually how you say it. Watch this. Watch this definition of fear. It, uh, lick it like a lollipop. All of the exalted or fear of God, righteous reverence for life that comes from rightly seeing God in ourselves. Fear of God descend on this place. I want to rightly see you, and I want to rightly see myself, and I want to rightly see my brothers and sisters in Christ. Reverent awareness, holy affection, authentic communion with God's Spirit. What does it look like when we start to arrive at that level? I would say it looks a little bit like this. Have you guys ever played solitaire? Now, I'm not talking to that dumb one on your laptop when you're jerking around at work and you should be working. Isn't that right in the office? Anytime you see a computer screen, it had solitaire on it. My kids are watching that now. I mean, no, they're not. I never let my kids watch that show. <laughs> so I was, I was teaching Scoot, my oldest, to play uh, solitaire one time. And I'm such an energetic and engaged parent that I think I 
gave him half the instructions because I wanted to do something else. So I'm like, here's the cards, bro. Lay them all out. Then you take three cards, flip them over. You just got to line them up uh, in descending order from the suits. Make sure they're every other color. And then here's the cool thing. When you get a king and there's an empty spot, you can move it over and get the cards that are underneath it. So that's the game. Have fun, bro. So he's playing a couple games. He's like, Dad, it's really tough. And I came back and I looked on his thing and he was doing really, really well. But he had this nice long run. It was king, queen, jack, 10, 9, 8, all the way down to two. And then guess what he put below the two? An ace. I forgot to tell him about the aces. Which is, which is how you win the game. Once you get an ace, the whole game changes. Where does the ace go? Above all the other cards. What does it do? It drastically reorients the direction of the game because it is the trump card and you start to build based off of that. Here's the simplest picture I wanna give you tonight. Will you trade all of your other fears for the fear of God so that you can reorient them underneath God's rule and sovereignty and love and justice and mercy? I'm not saying you're not gonna experience them anymore. But I am saying that your fears are going to get the fear of God put into them. And they're going to bow down in front of him and say, we have no right or authority in this place any longer. Amen? Good. All right, so take 120 seconds. We're going to sing. We're going to worship. But I want you to figure out this. What fear is owning you right now that you want to trade in for the fear of God? What fear is consistently and constantly rising to the surface and sabotaging your joy? What fear would you ask the Holy Spirit to help you exchange for the fear of God so that they can be rightly ordered underneath his sovereign rule? Let's listen to God.